0: Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for February 23rd, 2020. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon this morning is entitled, A Christian Critique of a Rantier Economy. Let me tell you about the best sermon compliment I've ever been paid. It was about 15 years ago. I don't remember the sermon, but I was standing at the door and the woman came out and she said, and I quote, that was a great sermon. I disagreed with every word of it. That was a great sermon. You have invited us to speak openly and to challenge you from this pulpit. The history of an open pulpit, which you said to us over and over when you were interviewing us, it's an open pulpit. The history of an open pulpit is rich and rare. Most pastors do not enjoy the liberty you have given to us. Today, we began a seven-part preaching series, getting a one-week head start on the Lenten season, which is traditionally given to the discipline of self-examination sober reflection, healing contrition to a church that feels the impact of a divided nation, we will offer an invitation to you to think carefully, critically, with an open mind and heart even when you disagree. In 1925, in a daily newspaper called Young India, a social activist named Mohandas Gandhi speaking truth to the colonial power called Great Britain, listed seven social sins. Gandhi did not elaborate. He has never written a book on his seven social sins, but his challenge is as relevant today as it ever has been. For the next seven Sundays, we will consider his difficult topics. Today, wealth without work. It was that morning in the elementary school class when they talked about jobs, different jobs. And the teacher said to the little girl on the front row, So tell us what your father does. Where does your daddy work? And the little girl stood up. She was so proud. And with no shame or irony, she said, My daddy doesn't work. He's a Baptist minister. (laughs) As we consider Gandhi's critique of a culture of wealth without work. Let me make sure that everyone understands this pastor is not standing in judgment. More than a few times, I have endured the humiliation of someone saying with a straight face to me, so what is it that you like do all day? You see, I understand that the question about my work can be condescending. No one is judging the morality of any personal career choice, but Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And that is at least as true of families and churches and entire societies as it is of thoughtful, moral human beings. So let us examine thoughtfully. In these challenging times in the life of this nation, Critics of all stripes are asking difficult questions. Greece and Rome crumbled, colonial Britain fizzled. Is the end of liberal democracy in sight? Has capitalism run its course? Have we, like other nations, turned to an authoritarian because we can't trust our own institutions? Betraying democracy itself, have we turned to a megalomaniac to set things right for us? Now, one need not be a Bible thumper to note a lack of morality, a culture of coarse language and vulgar etiquette, if there's any such thing as vulgar etiquette, a a disturbing lack of civility and decency. Many of the common codes that once guided us to be respectful to one another have been frittered away, maybe twittered away. Perhaps most troubling for a nation is the erosion of truth, telling truth, discerning truth. It's no partisan swipe to observe that any nation that can contemplate alternative facts is playing with fire if not whispering its own demise. And while the Dow Jones Industrial Average is approaching a staggering 30,000, the National Center for Children in Poverty reports that 15 million children, 21% of all children in the United States live in families with incomes below the federal poverty threshold. And almost half of all children in this country live in low-income families. Since 50% of Americans do not own even a single share of stock in the market, the skyrocketing growth of the richest among us is not the measure of a successful economy, much less the morality of a nation. Any nation willing to follow Socrates' wisdom To examine itself critically, must take an honest look. Are these trends connected? The indecency, the vulgarity, and the growing gap between rich and poor, are they connected? What does the wealth of our nation have to say about our collective national morality? As I reminded you last week, there is either social justice or no justice at all. Now, academics or politicians might view this question dispassionately, just writing papers or manipulating the data for personal gain. Christians need to ask the question with compassion, not dispassionately, but compassionately, because people of faith are supposed to have a different standard. Biblical justice demands we ask the questions. The oldest of our biblical prophets and Jesus in line with them have always done so. The story of Ahab that Dan just read. Its inclusion in Israel's history is evidence that the story represents one of the oldest concerns in the Bible. This concern is why I was taught that the Bible is mostly about economics, how we take care of ourselves, and that always has to do with economics. The Jews told of an unscrupulous national leader who was willing to abuse the poor, to be guided by his sexual appetite, his influence by an immoral woman. They told the story not because they were self-righteous conservatives or elitist liberals, but because the treatment of the poor by the wealthy is at the heart of God's concern for this world. That concern is echoed by the prophet Amos who preached in in, in what was probably Israel's most prosperous moment until now. Eight centuries before Jesus, the economy was booming The rich had luxurious homes and vacation houses. They feasted in comfort. And the leaders of the religious establishment were thick as thieves with those at the top. You could not separate religious piety and political pride. The civil religion they preached blessed the wealthy and cursed the poor, the outcast, the immigrant. In the gates the literal fortified entrances to the city, people brought their grievances to the leaders, but corruption was rampant in this ancient judicial system. The rich were richer than they had ever been, and it was as if they could not even see the poor who were suffering all around them. The inequality was heartbreaking to the prophet. As if crushing poverty was not enough, In the gates, because their voices did not carry weight, they continued to be abused. There was discrimination, redlining, usury. You know, charging interest to the poor was as debilitating then as it is now. Amos harshly criticized the righteous and the wealthy, accusing them of hating anyone who reproved in the gates That is, anyone who stood in the gates in those court sessions and dared to criticize the system as it was, the system, economic and religious. They, that is the ruling class, hated anyone who dared to reprimand them, who dared to reprimand the wealthy, even implying their wealth was not earned or deserved, that it might have been made on the backs of the poor. Amos was not a popular guy. Think Jesus and Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Even Gene Owens, that first day, he was the pastor at Myers Park Baptist Church when he came down out of that tall pulpit and he walked down the aisle preaching to Myers Park about materialism and militarism. An old parody that my father used to sing reminded preachers to tiptoe through the tithers. And be careful to stay off their toes. But prophets do not tiptoe. And Amos did not. Now, I didn't watch much of last week's mud-slinging melee in Las Vegas. I have seen more civilized boxing matches, I think. The Democrats might should have followed the mantra of Sin City and let everything that happens in Vegas just stay in Vegas to begin with. In one of the many angry exchanges after the millionaire excoriated the billionaire for his grotesque wealth, the moderator asked Mike Bloomberg, is it too much? Should you have earned that much money? And one of the, richest, the world's richest men replied simply, well, I worked hard for it. That remark revealed a wealth that is completely insensitive to the equally hard work of millions and millions of people who labor, sometimes at two and three jobs, just barely keeping their heads above water. Remember the phrase, out of touch, please. As I was preparing this difficult sermon, I stumbled into the thorny philosophical, I might even say theological debate about banking. Now, remember, I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm trying to not look at any of our bankers here today. (laughs) The thorny philosophical issue about bankers is banking ethical. Biblical injunctions against charging interest are numerous. So this is hardly a new conversation. In the book of Exodus, Moses speaks for God, if you lend money to my people To the poor among you, that is, you shall not charge interest. The words of the prophet Ezekiel are even more harsh. If he lends money and takes increase, will he live? He will not live. His blood will be on his own hands. And Jesus charged his followers, love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return. It was in this conversation that I was introduced to the word rontier, and you know how I love new words. Rontier was an appropriate, if disconcerting, concept with Gandhi's social sin and biblical justice in mind. In a critique of the rontier economy, a journalist named Rutger Bregman distinguishes two kinds of jobs, those formed of work, That is, making something, delivering a service, helping people, and those whose wealth comes from leveraging control over something that already exists, the rentier economy. Our culture has been transformed from one where nearly everyone was involved in producing something An agrarian culture became an industrialized society, which has become a nation where fewer and fewer make anything at all. It is worth considering what impact such a culture has on the soul of a people. The richest among us, and by a staggering sum, make their fortunes using somebody else's money by manipulating the work of somebody else's hands. The rentier economy. Now what does it mean when you can get filthy rich and never touch the earth? I'm not impugning anybody's character with the word filthy. I'm just playing on the word there. Can you get filthy rich with never touching the earth? We've moved from an agrarian economy. You can sit at your computer all day long, connected to the markets, day trading to your heart's delight, and never even see another living human being. I called Michael Bloomberg's comment, out of touch. Maybe that's the heart of the social sin Gandhi foresaw, a nation so successful just at making money that it loses touch with the earth with one another, with God. Who needs to get any dirt under their fingernails when they can just count their returns? Who needs to learn how to trust one another, respect one another, when we've got a diversified portfolio? Who needs God? I've got money. Walter Brueggemann, probably the world's greatest Christian scholar of the Old Testament, says God's attentive concern extends into the economy then and now. And he notes the way in which our economy has progressively separated market exchanges from the human fabric. The end result is a market that operates, quote, autonomously. That is, without reference to human cost. The covenantal community, Brueggemann talks a lot about the covenant community, those guided by the rule of God. The covenantal community will not tolerate such a separation and will insist that economic power be subordinated to human realities of pain, need, and hope. The creation narrative of Genesis teaches us that God made the Sabbath day as a needed respite from six days of work, from the divine vocation of creating. God did not rest from building wealth. And history has not been kind to the nations whose economies separated wealth from the work of the earth and from the commerce of human relationships. As a fortunate, wealthy people, may God remind us of the value of the kind of work that puts us in touch with the earth and with one another. May it be so. Amen.
1: Since you seem to like both of us preaching... You get seven more weeks of it. But mine is an epilogue each week. An epilogue is a section or speech at the end of a book or a play that serves as a comment on or a conclusion to what has just happened. So each week during this series, I want to flip the phrase of the day to briefly consider the reverse. Today, wealth without work. I want to talk about work without wealth. So I did some Googling just to get started, because that's how all good sermons start these days. I typed in, hardest jobs that pay the least. I promise you I had no idea what I was going to find when I did this. One of the first articles that popped up was entitled, careers to avoid, (laughs) lowest paying professional jobs. I kid you not, first on the list, minister. we will receive raises as you deem fit. (laughs) It was followed by journalist, social work and counseling, teacher. So how do we value things in our society based on our jobs? Then I came across an NPR clip with a story about moonlighters. The reporter said, in today's economy... Almost everyone has a job that wants one. But as our poll shows, nearly one third of full time workers moonlight. For many, student debt leaves them no choice. The story covered enumerating the long hours people work, it explained the loss of social systems because these folks don't have time for their friends. And they explained the emotional impact of a disconnect with their family by simply just how many funerals and weddings are missed because people are working so much. People are working long hours because they need the money to support family. And the choice many parents are faced with is, take on another job or have dinner with my kids. They interviewed a therapist who told about how he was moonlighting as a bartender every night But he wanted to see his kids, so he quit the bartending job, and now he drives Uber on weekends, and at least he's home with his kids in the evenings. He works hard. He does not accumulate wealth. And then I came across an article about the eight lowest-paying jobs in America. Food prep and serving workers, including fast food. Dishwashers. Nearly half a million people are dishwashers in this country. Cashiers with a workforce of 3.3 million people. Hosts, hostesses in restaurants. Amusement park attendants. And I thought about carowinds as our neighbor. Movie theater workers. Farm workers, often cited as the job Americans don't want, farm workers make 9 51 an hour, and most of the work is seasonal, strenuous, and dangerous. And about 7 in 10 agricultural workers are born outside of the United States. And the eighth lowest-paying job in America is personal and home care aides. Shouldn't they be among the highest paid, taking care of those in the greatest need and the most vulnerable? And then I didn't need an article to tell me this. This is just my own personal belief with absolutely no statistics to back it up. My own belief is that teachers have the hardest jobs to be paid such a substandard wage. The lives of our children in their hands all day, every day, teaching them to read, to write, math, Social studies, history, science, and teaching them social skills of how to just get along in the world. And most teachers moonlight too. And in Charlotte, there was an article written by Crisis Assistance Ministry entitled, Let's Talk About Living Wages in the Queen City, it was written last year. The article ended with a question Who is Left Out? The article says, although some low-wage employees will benefit from increases in the minimum wage, a lot of hard-working people are left out. Many businesses hire contractors to perform duties such as landscaping and janitorial work. These contractors are not obligated to pay their laborers more than North Carolina's minimum wage. A report by the National Low Income Housing Coalition last year demonstrated there's not a single county in the entire nation where a full-time worker earning the minimum wage can afford a two-bedroom apartment. Here in Charlotte, to afford that apartment, a worker would have to work 103 hours a week. That's two and a half full-time jobs. So the epilogue is this. At the very least, let us acknowledge all of the people who work long hours and never seem to be able to make ends meet. Let us at the very least name the countless workers that make our lives better because of their tireless labor that never allows them to break even, much less get ahead. And let us at the very least recognize the plenty of poor people who work hard. And let us simply admit the painful inequities in this conversation. If the church cannot admit the painful inequity that we've been talking about this morning, there is no hope. So let us recall the teaching of Jesus Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these without food, one of the least of these without housing, one of the least of these without clothing, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. I pray that we would work hard to live the teachings of Jesus. May it be so.
0: We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening. Peace and peace to you.